the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. This is actually, for those of you that have been about for a while, this is the 29th sermon in Luke. Um, we're sort of dipping in and out and spend a few weeks in Luke and then going elsewhere and then coming back. But uh, I reckon we're, we're probably going to be banging around in Luke for another couple of years at least. Uh, and that's good because I want you to be fascinated with Jesus. I mean fascinated with him because otherwise you will not make it. You cannot follow one your whole life with whom you are not fascinated. <laughs> he has to be more than just a small idea of the one who gets me into heaven. He has to be more than just the one who forgives my sins. He does all that. But I want you to be utterly obsessed with him, consumed with him, fascinated by him. Because as life gets tough and you come down the mountain, which we'll see a wee bit later, uh, it does get tricky. So let's read from Luke chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 28 to somewhere about maybe 36. Uh, But we are going to go a wee bit further than that today. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully... Does anybody relate to that this morning just before we read any further? Anybody really sleepy? I overheard somebody declaring they were a bit sleepy. It's okay, you're in good company. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Luke adds, in humor, he did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Mountains. About a week and a half ago, Rach and I were on a mountain and we were in a cloud. Now, we were not in a cloud of glory. We were in a cloud of rain at the top of Berna. From the bottom of Berna, we could see that the top of Berna was in a cloud and we still, because we're stubborn, went up it anyway and into the cloud at the top. And normally when we're at the top of mountains, we take selfies. We didn't do it that day because if you'd have held your phone at arm's length, you wouldn't have been able to see your phone because the cloud was just sort of that thick and it was windy and it was rainy and it was horrendous. So that's not what we're talking about. They didn't just go up this, this mountain in a cloudy rainstorm. Mountains in the Bible are a big deal. Eden was on a mountain. You don't read that in Genesis, but you read it in Ezekiel 28. The actual Garden of Eden itself is on the, the Lord's mountain in Ezekiel 28. Noah, when his ark 
comes to rest, it comes to rest on a mountain. Just giving you a snapshot of a few mountains. Moses goes up Mount Sinai. We'll hear more about it later. Elijah does some nifty stuff on mountains. Mount Carmel and Mount Horeb. Solomon builds the temple on Mount Moriah. Some land that David had bought for the temple to be built. Jerusalem, Mount Zion, where a temple was built. And and whenever the the children of Israel, under Moses' guidance, whenever they made the tabernacle, the cloud of God's glory came. The cloud, all right? And overshadowed it and filled it with his presence. And whenever Solomon built the temple and they dedicated the temple, the same thing happened. But if you know your history of God's people a wee bit, you will know that after that they went into exile in Babylon. We talk about it a lot. And after the exile, when they returned to Jerusalem to do a rebuilding project, and they rebuilt the temple, and Herod at a later stage came along and helped out, gave them some money to win some favor, and he rebuilt the temple. But the glory of God never came back. The glory that was at the tabernacle of Moses, the temple of Solomon, when they built the second temple, God's glory never returned. There's a promise in Malachi 3.1, which says that God will suddenly return to his temple. And his people held on to that for 400 years, believing that he would return to his temple. Jesus himself, one of his temptations involved a mountain where Satan brought him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, you can have these if you bow down and worship me. He appointed his 12 disciples on a mountain. He gave a sermon on a mountain called the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. He also gave a discourse on the mountain towards the end before he was, you know, crucified. He, He gave what's called the Olivet Discourse on the Mount of Olives, a lot of which refers to stuff that happened in AD 70 and some stuff beyond that as well. He gave the Great Commission on a mountain at the end of Matthew, and he ascended from a mountain at the end of Luke and the start of Acts. Okay? Mountains are a big deal in the Bible. Mountains just seem to be a place where people are closer to God, and God's stuff happens. And today we're on a mountain which Bible scholars think is called Mount Tabor. Tabor, that's, the, that's a photograph of it. Sort of windy road all the way up there. Um, And it's a bizarre moment in the life of Jesus, the transfiguration. You've heard of it. You maybe studied it in RE in school and you were told the transfiguration proves that Jesus is God. Now let's move on to the next thing. And there's a, there's, it's packed with significance. So if you know your Old Testament, and I will go into this a wee bit as we go on, but we've heard a story before where somebody goes up a mountain and a cloud comes down and God speaks and his face changes and as he comes down the mountain again, his face is shining. And just in case you don't know and you haven't got it, Luke makes it clear as he tells us this story, Moses actually shows up. And to understand this story, we have to think a little bit about what happened in Exodus with Moses. Up the mountain with God, receiving the Ten Commandments. We'll talk a bit more about it later. And one of the themes in Luke this far that I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, over and over again, you get people asking or speculating about who is Jesus. He's, you know, Herod asks, who is this man? Jesus says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? It's just buzzing around in the background throughout Luke's gospel, who is Jesus? 
And I guess what I want to achieve by spending like 20 years going through Luke is getting you guys to a clear picture of Jesus so you can see who he is and then decide how to respond. So this happened apparently eight days later. Now, just so you know that eight days later after after Jesus said this, what did he say? If you read the verses just before this, you will find him telling his disciples that they must take up their cross daily, deny themselves and follow him. And he also says that some of those who are standing there will not taste death before they have seen his kingdom come. And then this happens. Peter, James and John are the only three that are brought. You could say those are the three that were closest to Jesus. Those were his three special friends. Or maybe they just needed more help. Okay, Maybe they were just a wee bit dull and he had to just, you know, invest in them a little bit more. And Luke also tells us that it happened while he was praying. Now listen church, stuff happens while you pray. Okay. Whether you're praying on your own or whether you're praying in community with God's people, things happen as you pray. And, and a little, another little theme that Luke has that you probably only see when you start to dive in a wee bit is, is frequently Luke will tell you that Jesus was praying when something happened. The other gospel writers don't tell us that he was praying at the transfiguration. Nor do they tell us that he was praying at his baptism when the Holy Spirit came down. Only Luke tells you that. Luke really wants to emphasize that some of the key stuff that happened for Jesus happened as he prayed. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. Now this is different from what happened to Moses. When Moses went up the mountain in the Old Testament, the cloud came down, God was in the cloud, his voice spoke, and after that, Moses' face was shining. His face was like a mirror. He was reflecting the glory of God. Now, in this story in the Transfiguration, the cloud hasn't come down yet, and God hasn't spoken yet, and already Jesus is radiating glory. Letting us know that there's something different here. When you're studying the Bible and you look at two stories that are similar, one of the best ways to actually understand them is look for the little differences. And this story is very similar to when Moses went up the mountain in Exodus. But one of the differences is Moses reflected the glory of God, whereas Jesus just radiated it. It burst out from within him. He was not reflecting light from somewhere else. It was coming from within him. And two guys show up on the mountainside with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. In the story of Moses in Exodus, Moses leads God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery. He goes up a mountain called Sinai. God's cloud descends and God speaks and he gives Moses the law. And whenever Moses comes down the mountain, these wee details are going to be important later. So stay plugged in. All right? When Moses comes down the mountain, at the bottom of the mountain, he finds a scene of idolatry. And you know what the children of Israelite are worshipping. They're worshipping a golden calf. They've all chucked their bling into the fire and it's all melted and they have made a golden calf and started to worship it. It's a scene of idolatry at the bottom of the mountain once Moses comes down. And he goes back up the mountain a second time 
He can hold all this, okay? He's been up the mountain once. He's encountered the glory of God. He's come back to this scene of idolatry and he goes up the mountain a second time to get forgiveness, to plead with God for mercy for the people. And he asks that he would see God's glory when he goes up that second time. As he comes down, his face has changed. And towards the end of Moses' life, God says to the people in Deuteronomy 18, 15, there's going to be another prophet just like him. Make sure you listen to him when he comes. Right? You listen to him. He's talking about Jesus. Elijah is the other one who has shown up. And Elijah's the guy who went up on the top of Mount Carmel and rebuilt an altar and had a bit of a, a competition with the prophets of Baal to see whose altar or whose God would, would bring fire on their altar. And Elijah won. And then after Elijah has, has won the victory on the mountain and God's fire and his presence has come down, after that, God, or Elijah goes down into the valley. This is important. Hold on to it because we'll come back later. After the mountain experience, down into the valley. And what does Elijah deal with in the valley? He deals with idolatry. False prophets of Baal. 450 of them who were engaging in idolatry and leading the people in idolatry. And Elijah goes down the mountain into the valley to deal with it. Elijah also heard the whisper of God on Mount Horeb, which is thought to be the same as Sinai. After he's run away from Jezebel, he hears God's whisper to him. And I want you to see the scene on this mountain because it's important and I'll come back to it later. Jesus is in the middle. For some of you, lights will already go on and that's nice. Jesus is in the middle and there are two people on either side of him on a mountain. One of them is Moses, one of them is Elijah. Moses represents the law of God. Elijah represents the prophets. And they are on either side of Jesus focusing the attention on him. And they're, all right. they're shiny as well. Everybody's shiny on the mountain. They're appearing in glorious splendor. And again, note that what's, you know, Moses and Elijah, they're also appearing in this, this glory. But for them, again, the cloud hasn't come down yet. But they're still just reflecting. Moses, after he had seen the glory of God in Exodus, his face was shining. Moses standing beside Jesus on this mountain before any cloud comes, his face is shining. He's radiating. And it's letting you know that Jesus is not just. He's not just the Messiah. He's not just the one who's going to forgive sins. He's not just the one who's going to deal with oppression. He is so much more. This is God. <laughs> who is this? The question throughout, look, who is this? This is God. And that's why Elijah and Moses are already in splendor as they sit, as they stand with Jesus. And here's the conversation they have. They speak about his departure. They're not talking about the law. I think you could close that if you want. It'll be all right. Like, they're, not, they're not talking about the law that Moses represents, and they're not talking about the prophets that Elijah represents. They're not talking about Jesus' miracles. They're not saying, Jesus, that was class, what you did last week. And they're not talking about his sermons and his teaching. Jesus, that was really great what you taught. No, no, they're not talking about any of that. They're talking about his departure. That's the important thing. That's the focal point, his departure. And it's a strange sort of word, this word departure. I'll look at it in a minute. 
But there's another strange phrase that's used. They spoke about his departure, which of course means his death, simply. We still would talk about people being departed. They spoke about his, his departure, which, was, which he was about to bring to fulfillment. Now, what that literally means, and what it might say in some translations, which he was about to accomplish. You don't think that much about death being an accomplishment for people, that they accomplish something. But Jesus, this is no ordinary death. Jesus in his death accomplished something. We sang earlier about about forgiveness, about being released, about being set free. Jesus accomplished freedom for people and forgiveness for people by his death. And in fact, there's a play on words here. They spoke about his departure. In Greek, literally, they spoke about his exodus. And if you haven't twigged on, you know, Luke's readers, if they haven't caught yet what's going on with the talk about a cloud and a mountain and a voice and faces shining and Moses showing up, Luke sort of just makes it really clear we're talking Exodus here. He uses the word Exodus. It literally says Moses and Elijah appeared with him and spoke about his Exodus. Now, has there ever been a greater conversation in history? Apart from Jesus and God in John 17, has there ever been a conversation like this where Jesus and Moses are standing talking about Exodus? Not just Moses' Exodus from from millennia before, but the Exodus that Jesus was going to accomplish at the cross. The new Exodus. Not uh, an exodus from Pharaoh and from slavery to him through the waters of the Red Sea and into a new land. Not that exodus. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Jesus' new exodus, which is an exodus from the grip of Satan, not Pharaoh. Through the waters of baptism, not the Red Sea, and into new life in Christ, not into a new land. And you've got these two great Heroes of Israel's history, Moses, Elijah, on either side of Jesus, focusing all the attention on him, talking about the Exodus and his forthcoming Exodus. And while these two great heroes are there that every Israelite loved and respected and revered, the disciples are in the background sleeping. <laughs> Can you believe it? Like, I love this, to be honest. I love it. I love the the humanity of the disciples. This is Peter, James, and John. Peter, the rock on which I will build my church. And Moses and Elijah show up and he's having a nap. (laughs) Come on. I like that. Do you know what? See when you're just beat, you're dead tired, and you're thinking there's all sorts of important things that I should be fulfilling and doing, and I'm such a mess. Just think about this. Okay, it's okay to be human and it's okay to be weary and it's okay sometimes to not sort of get things exactly the way you want them. I love it. I can imagine Jesus sort of waving at them. Hey guys, look who's here, you know, Moses and Elijah and you've been, you've been snoozing, you've missed it. And Peter, Peter in his brilliance says, you know, Jesus is there and it's just been very clearly revealed that we're dealing with God. And Moses and Elijah are there and Peter says, it's good that we're here. (laughs) 
isn't it? You know, isn't it oh, very fortuitous, Jesus, that we've, we've come with you today. And I can imagine Moses and Elijah just sort of, you know, oh, no, mate. <laughs> Rolling their eyes, face planting. Peter's just dropped the ball again and said something ridiculous. And he goes on, he goes on, he says, come on, let's put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I don't know if you've ever tried to visualize what that would look like. What, <laughs> what I picture is, do you know outside Buckingham Palace, you have the, the guard with the big, massive, black, fluffy hat, and he's got this wee wooden house that's just about big enough for him to go and stand into. I picture three of those. On, on the mountain, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. And I'm laughing at Peter here, but Peter's got something. Because he says, Let, let's put up three shelters. Again, more literally, it says, let's put up three tabernacles. Or three booths. Which again is Old Testament language, because Peter knows. We're on a mountain, and look who's here. And he knows that God's presence comes to tabernacles. To tents, he dwells in those places, and and, and Peter's. I, I I love Peter, but you know Peter nearly always, even when he's doing something wrong, he's usually at least fifty percent right. He's usually got a good heart in it. Like when he, he rebuked Jesus and, and and told Jesus that he wasn't going to suffer and that wasn't going to happen, you can see the heart in the guy. He got it wrong, but you can see the heart in it. And here he's understanding where we are. God's glory could come. God's glory could fall in this place, but we have to get a couple of tabernacles up real quick because that's what happens. And as he's speaking, he, he, the words are still sort of falling out of his mouth and, and the, the glory does fall, but he doesn't have time to put up any tents. We can't really blame Peter here. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience? You're bound to have some of you that have walked with God for a period of time. Have you ever had a moment where you just feel, my goodness, he is so real right now. So real. He's so close. Moments maybe on your own in prayer. I can remember moments in here of just wrestling in prayer for things and wrestling in prayer for people. And I can remember one night in particular praying for an individual who was sick and I was in the prayer room and it was, it was getting into the wee hours of the morning and it just felt like breakthrough came. Those moments where you just feel God's close. I remember a night, and would like to do it again soon, something similar of, of just having a couple of hours of praise here on a Sunday night. No sermon, no structure, just praise and just, got, just God's people worshiping him and, and being present to him. And just saying, God, come and come and speak to us. Come and do what you want. I remember we did that a few years ago, one night in June. It was absolutely powerful. This guy rocked up from South Africa who, who had come over, you know, completely unplanned with, with Neil Dawson from Grace Community Church. And God just showed up. <laughs> and it was class. And we were on the mountain. And I don't know about you, but I want to live there all the time. <laughs> I just never want to leave those moments. But we can't. <laughs> you know, we can't live on the mountain. We'll see after, in, a, in a moment or two what, what actually happens after this. But you can't live on the mountain. 
but you want to. And Peter, again, I'm not going to criticize Peter here because Peter's doing what we all want to do. We, we encounter these special moments and we just think, oh, let me just stay here forever. But that's not our mission in the world. The cloud comes, overshadows them, and they're afraid and they go into the cloud. And God speaks. Now, I didn't sort of get to fully check this out, but I, I have a notion this might be the only time in the New Testament that there's an audible voice of God that is heard by others other than Jesus. Jesus hears it at his baptism. I'm not sure whether others hear it clearly at his baptism or not. There are other places where God speaks and you, you hear the bystanders saying that it sounded like thunder, which maybe means they didn't actually hear what he said. God's audible voice, and Jesus obviously, you know, God the Son speaks much, but God the Father in this manner, this doesn't happen much, if at all, anywhere else in the New Testament. So it's really important. And he says to the, to the disciples, Peter, James, and John, this is my son. Now that, that just doesn't mean, here, here's my boy, you know, it's not just... That, no, it's more than that. Because back in the Old Testament, God refers to Israel as his son. And again, if you've been about for a while, I'm not going to rehash it all, but you'll know how much I have hammered the point that Jesus is reconstituting Israel around himself. That a lot of the, the experience of his life is he's redoing the stuff Israel did and they got wrong. He's getting it right. And Israel, in the Old Testament, in Exodus 4, God says to Moses to tell Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go that he may worship me. A son was to reflect his father. A son was to show the world the character of his father. And God's people, Israel and the church, are meant to do that. So if people think badly of God, that means we've messed up. Okay, we're meant to show the character of God. And that's why God refers to, to Israel as his son and to Jesus. This is my son. This is the one who's going to show you what I am like and who is going to get it right and not mess it up the way Israel did. He's more than Moses who gave the law and he's more than Elijah who represents the prophets. He's my son. All right, he's on a different level from the others. And in Exodus, whenever God speaks from the cloud to Moses, if you've got to Exodus in your reading plan and you've actually stuck it out, the second half of Exodus is a wee bit like an Old Testament Ikea manual. As God tells Moses how to make the tabernacle and how to make the table and how to make the wash basin and how to make the ark, all these different things in, in detail, chapter after chapter after chapter of how to make all this stuff. Really detailed. Here, that's it. Listen to him. In English, three words. In Greek, two. And he's gone. No chapter after chapter of instruction. No heap of rules, regulations, laws. Just listen to him. Rick Watts, here's a lengthy quote, bear with me. We don't need instructions for a tabernacle. 
Because as John will later explain, in Jesus, God has already tabernacled among us. And what about the law? It's now fulfilled in Jesus' teaching. The entire emphasis of Jesus' new exodus way of the Lord, this way of God's wisdom, lies on taking up your cross and following Jesus. The new law embodied in Jesus' own taking up of his cross is primarily concerned with how we treat people. Not with how we are treated, but how we treat others. Jesus himself sums this up in two commands. Love God with all of your being, which means to follow Jesus, and love your neighbor as yourself. Church, get fascinated with him or you're not going to make it. Listen to him. That's it. God's gone in the cloud. He's, he's gone. And Moses and Elijah, gone. And standing on the mountain, we've got Jesus and his three disciples. And the glowing has stopped. And they basically, if you want to see glory, if you want to see God, just keep listening to him. Stay fascinated with him. And they go, and as we close, I want you to see what happens as they come down the mountain. You remember what happened when Moses came down the mountain? And what happened when Elijah came down the mountain? Peter says, let's build some tents. And Jesus says, no, (laughs) we need to go down the mountain. It's time to leave and go down and see what we can find. Peter needs to know that glory will be seen more clearly elsewhere. He has seen glory and he wants to just pitch his tent and live beside it for the rest of his life. But he needs to see that glory has to also show up in the mess of broken humanity. When Moses came down the mountain, he found a chaotic scene of God's people worshipping an idol. And he was angry. Whenever Jesus comes down the mountain, he finds another chaotic scene. Elijah came down the mountain and found idol worshippers and destroyed them. Jesus comes down and finds this. A man is there. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son. (laughs) My son. He is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. A spirit being a demon. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. This is not medical, okay? This, you know, the, the, some of the things here can be medical. This is not medical. There is a demon trying to destroy. When you read the other Gospels, you read that the demon tries to throw him into the fire, throw him into the water, just to destroy life. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't do it. Whenever Paul gives us some teaching in 1 Corinthians 10 about idolatry, he lets us into a very important insight. Moses came down the mountain and found idolatry. Elijah came down the mountain and found idolatry. And and Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20, do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, no. In other words, the little statue or whatever it was that they were worshipping, Paul says, that's nothing. It's just a bit of stone or a bit of wood or whatever. But (laughs) 
The sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. And what Paul is telling us is that behind idolatry, there are demons lapping up the worship that's being given to the idols. So when Jesus comes down the mountain and finds a demon wreaking havoc, he is effectively saying the same thing that Moses saw and Elijah saw when they come down the mountain. Because behind the idolatry that they saw, there are demons. And Jesus comes to the foot of the mountain and encounters this demon. And the disciples, I'm sure, are really ticked. (laughs) The ones that are down at the bottom of the mountain can't deal with it. They, They could have in the past. They had dealt with this before, but this, this demon is a stubborn one and will not leave. Some days the Christian life is easy. You're on the mountain and you're seeing the glory. And other days it is hard. <laughs> it is really hard where you're just getting hit from every direction with everything. In the first part of the gospel, it all just seems, oh, wonderful. Crowds are getting fed and people are getting healed and teachings being received. The Pharisees are causing a bit of bother. But in general, Jesus is quite popular. But from now on, it's going to get harder. They've seen the glory and now things are going to get more difficult. If you think the Christian life gets easier as you get older, as you mature in your faith, it doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't. Quite the opposite. The more that you see God, the more that, that he reveals himself to you, the more courage and strength and spiritual energy will be required to deal with the things that you will then be presented with. And you know what? I think this is brilliant. This is one of those things that, that you, you read in a, in a book. It was a Tom Wright book. And you think, my goodness, I'm so stupid. How I have I not seen that before? But at the center of this story, up of the mountain, we had you know, God declaring Jesus to be his son. And Israel being God's son. And, and throughout the Old Testament, you have this picture of a father and a rebellious child, Israel. And the father's heart breaking for the child. And in the Gospels, how many times when you actually think about it, do you have a parent in broken desperation over a child coming to Jesus? Here, this is a man whose son is demon-possessed. Jairus, whose daughter has died. The widow at Nain in Luke chapter 7, whose son has died. The stories, the the parable of the prodigal, the father whose son has taken his stuff and gone. The Syrophoenician woman who also came on behalf of a child. Over and over again, we have these scenes where a parent broken over their child comes to Jesus. And is it a picture of a father, God? broken over wayward humanity and showing us through these stories how he wants to heal them. Moses came down the mountain and he was angry when he saw the idolatry. Jesus also came down the mountain and appeared angry because the disciples did not have the faith in order to deal with this. And by now they should have. But I want you to get the scene As we come to a close, top of the mountain, all that glory, all that lovely stuff where we'd like to live. But Jesus won't stay there and he won't let the disciples stay there and he won't let you stay there either. Because Jesus has a mission in the world. And therefore Jesus says, you know, listen, listen to him, listen to me. You want to see more glory? Let's go down the mountain 
And let's go into the mess of humanity. And I'll show you glory down there. Let's set people free. Let's carry out a new exodus. Let's not just huddle ourselves away on the mountaintop and sing songs and have a great time. From, from that place of revelation and seeing him, you have to then descend into the reality of the mess of humanity. And some people criticize Christianity and they criticize God. And they look at the suffering in the world and they say, hmm, you know, if God was real, that wouldn't have happened. God just, all he's interested in is head in the clouds, you know, bright lights and glory and songs and tambourines and whatever. Jesus goes straight from the mountaintop right into the pits of human suffering. Don't tell me that God isn't concerned about the grief and the pain and the evil of this world because that's where you find Jesus after this encounter, after this revelation of the glory of God. All of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them put this story immediately after the transfiguration because they go together, living on the mountaintop, and going down to the valley. Tom Wright says, the more open we are to God and to the different dimensions of God's glory, the more we seem to be open to the pain of the world. I want to give you a health warning. You see, if you want the mountaintop, if you want to see the glory, you want to pursue after God, I'll give you a health warning. Because you see, when you come back down the mountain, you're going, to, you're going to see the pain of humanity more than you saw it before. You're not going to be able to just walk past things and ignore them and not feel what the Holy Spirit feels. The more you're open to God, the more you say, yeah, Jesus, I want to see your glory, the more he will say, okay, let's go. Let me show you where my glory will be manifested among broken humanity. And people need to know, you almost need a warning. If you're going to go deep with God, your heart will be broken for people. Not just your own family or those close to you, but your heart will be broken for your town, your wider community, whatever it may be. You will look at people, whether it's old people or young people or in between, but you will look and you'll just say, I can't ignore that. I told you a couple of weeks ago of, of, a, of a situation that I encountered out in the street on a Saturday night. Can't talk about it in detail because this is being recorded. But I couldn't leave the town without going and talking to that kid. I just couldn't. I couldn't ignore it. A few years ago, five, ten years ago, I might have been able to just say I was not sad and just drive off. But you know what? Once you've seen the glory, you can't ignore the pain anymore. God won't let you. So health warning, you want to go deep with Jesus and you want to see the glory, you be ready. Your heart will be wrenched in two by the pain that you will start to see in this world that hitherto you didn't notice. The question is, will you go down the mountain with him? There's another mountain. And with this we do close. Peter not only needs to learn that the glory of, of, of God is seen down in the valley among the suffering of humanity, but there's another mountain where he needs to realize that he will see glory. An ugly little hill outside Jerusalem. And again, here's where you do the, for those of you that are doing exams at the minute, you know those questions that you hate that start off with the words compare and contrast. <laughs> and then you just go into, I will write everything I know about everything mode. But compare and contrast the Mount of Transfiguration and the cross 
on the Transfiguration Mountain, Jesus is revealed in glory. On the mountain of Calvary, he is revealed in shame. Transfiguration, his clothes are shining brightly. On Mount Calvary, he's naked, stark naked. His clothes have been removed and gambled for by Roman soldiers. Here on the Mount of Transfiguration, he is flanked by two of Israel's greatest heroes representing the law and the prophets. But there on Mount Calvary, he is flanked by two thieves representing sin and corruption and broken humanity. Here at the Mount of Transfiguration, a bright cloud overshadows the scene and God speaks out of the cloud. But there at Mount Calvary, darkness falls across the whole land. Here Peter blurts out how wonderful it all is and that he wants to stay there forever, but there at Mount Calvary, Peter will deny Jesus and run away. Here a voice from God declares that Jesus is his son. There it will be a Roman executioner that will say, surely this was the son of God. Here Jesus hears the voice of his father proclaiming who he is. There Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And John says, that's where you see the glory. John 12, 23, when Jesus realizes that the hour has come for him to go to the cross, he doesn't say the hour has come for my death. He doesn't say the hour has come for me to be beaten and whipped and scourged and mocked and spat on and all sorts of things. He says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The transfiguration incredibly important moment in the life of Jesus but the greater glory is revealed in the cross let's pray and then we'll sing